The views, comments, stories, and opinions within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. Squawk Ident is an entertainment podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode six of Squawk Ident, recorded on October 29, 2019, from the Aviator Studios somewhere in Southern California. On today's episode of Squawk Ident, we're going to dive into the current NTSC report that was just released in reference to the Lion Air crash. That's the Lion Air 610 flight that crashed on October 29th, 2018. And the report outlines quite some interesting information. We're going to dive into that. Also, malfunctions happen anytime you're dealing with a mechanical equipment of any kind it things break things malfunction and i've got some stories uh, about that and then from the struggle is real segment sleep deprived pilots and it it actually is an issue so let's dive into the whole thing shall we so the 737 max as anyone who has turned a television on in the past year, I'm sure they've heard about this this uh, Bain and Boeing's uh, production of the 737, how it was grounded, and why. So these jets were grounded worldwide in March of this year after two fatal crashes killed a combined 346 people. So in March, aviation authorities and airlines around the world grounded the Boeing 737 MAX passenger airline after two of their brand new Boeing MAX 800 aircraft crashed. And uh, the accidents uh, involved both a Lion Air Flight 610, which happened on October 29th, and the Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, which happened a few months later on March 10th. So Ethiopian Airlines uh, was actually the first airline to ground all of its MAX fleet, effective the very day of the accident. And one day later, on March 11th, China's Civil Air Administration ordered the first regulatory grounding, which kind of started the ball rolling for other countries to follow suit. Uh, Most other agencies and airlines followed suit over the next few days, and the U.S. Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, they reaffirmed that the airworthiness of the MAX uh, was good on March 11th. But a couple days later, on March 13th, they revoked that statement and grounded the entire uh, line of uh, 737 MAX aircraft. I can remember that day actually very well. Um, I was scheduled to fly from Charlotte to Miami on an Airbus A319, I think it was, for the day. And before we got to the airport, I received notification that rather than flying the airplane, we were now going to be deadheading. And I I don't know if I've mentioned deadheading in the past, but a deadhead is when a pilot crew or a flight crew or even flight attendants Uh, For whatever reason, they need to get from one city to the next. And rather than working the flight, 
they're riding in the back with the passengers. So a deadhead is some people don't mind them and others just can't stand them. I personally don't have a positive opinion about deadheading. Uh, I'll do it if I have to, obviously, but uh, it's it's kind of a well, let's just say it's not my favorite. Okay, so I was deadheading on this flight from Charlotte to Miami, and when I got to the airport, I found out that the aircraft that was selected to do this was a Boeing 737 Max. And of course, the news of the day was, you know, is the U.S. going to follow suit or uh, are we going to be insistent that it's not an aircraft problem, it was a pilot or a pilot training problem? So it was quite the debate. And as I was sitting in the back there, I was looking at my my social media stuff and uh, posted a photo of me uh, sitting uh, in the back of a 737 Max, having a cup of coffee, uh, placing it on a tray table and saying, hey, you know, I'm confident that this aircraft is safe and uh, no worries at all. And uh, I think that our pilots are very well trained. And if ever there was an issue with a pitch trim runaway or, or an MCAS system that uh, would cause them to have to respond uh, immediately, I'm confident that that would happen. But uh, at the time and, and since, uh, there have been no um, incidences of MCAS failure in the U.S., so I felt pretty confident. Well, that confidence was very short-lived because by the time we landed in Miami, the word was out that the FAA had decided to ground all 737 MAX aircraft. And the reason I wanted to talk about this today was because this morning I actually read uh, a couple articles. Uh, one was from a CNN Business, an article written by Chris Isidore, uh, published on October 24th. And it talks about uh, some good numbers here about uh, how grounding this airplane has affected a lot of the U.S. carriers. And I wanted to share those uh, numbers with you today. So the grounding has uh, affected 385 MAX aircraft serving 8,600 weekly flights from 59 airlines around the world. Uh, the grounding of the Boeing 737 MAX will uh, cost American and Southwest Airlines at least $1 billion between them. The airlines reported this on Thursday. And that price tag is expected to continue to climb. Southwest said that the seven-month grounding so far has cost it $435 million through the end of September. It has 31 of the MAX jets, and that's more than any other Boeing customer. Southwest said that the cost will continue to mount in the fourth quarter and into next year. American Airlines also has 24 of the jets, and that it forecasts that the full year hit to its pre-tax profits will be more than $540 million. It has thus far canceled 9,500 flights due to the grounded jets in the third quarter alone. United Airlines has only 14 of the 737 MAX airplanes in its fleet, and it hasn't given any kind of estimates uh, of its losses in revenue. So, so the 737 MAX uh, NTSC report is uh, what really prompted all this. This is the report. I didn't read the full report. It's a, a hefty novel, but I did read a little bit of it, and I did find a very good article um, that 
was published in Flying Magazine, an article written by Rob Mark, and it was published earlier this morning on the 29th of October. So it indicates that the 737 MAX, the NTSC, which is the Indonesian version of the NTSB, it has issued its final report of uh, last year's crash of Lion Air Flight 610. And the article states that uh, aviators understand that aircraft accidents seldom occur because of a single misstep in the human or technological chain. They usually occur when a flight crew is overwhelmed by multiple human or technological failures within a short time span. The National Transportation Safety Committee issued its final report of the crash of Lion Air Flight 610, a Boeing 737 MAX, published almost one year to the date after the October 29, 2018 accident. The NTSC identified more than just a few factors that combined to bring the aircraft down in the Java Sea with the loss of all 189 people on board. With news coverage of the MAX over the past year, it would be easy to point to the well-documented institutional failures at both Boeing and the FAA to explain what happened. But when the NTSC report is tied together with the NTSB report last month, that detailed lapse in judgment at Boeing as the MAX was developed the report becomes even more damning. The NTSC also looked closely at the role of Lion Air personnel in the incident or accident. The NTSC's 322-page accident report looks at the now infamous maneuvering characteristic augmentation system on the 737 MAX as the primary culprit, but with a host of contributing issues. The MCAS software was, for instance, actually triggered by faulty data being fed from a misaligned angle of attack indicator installed just before the accident flight by Lion Air Maintenance, handled by Batam Aerotechnic and a repair facility, Extra Aerospace LLC. The pilots of Flight 610 were also faulted in the report. During the takeoff roll, the 737's digital flight data recorder indicated a 22-degree difference between the captain's and the first officer's angle of attack indicator that the pilots failed to uh, notice. They also did not notice that the captain's PFD showed a pitch attitude of negative 1 degree, while the first officer's showed positive 13 degrees. Another weak spot was coordination between the two Lion Air pilots immediately after takeoff. The first officer tried to communicate with the captain early on, but received no response. And a few moments later, the captain did not receive a response from the FO as he gave him instructions to try to manage the emergency. In the crew's defense, the cockpit was inundated with a dozen often conflicting warnings. The NTSC also called out the crew who flew the Boeing just prior to the accident flight. They were aware of a number of warnings they failed to mention after they landed in Jakarta. Nowhere did they mention, for example, that the Boeing stick shaker had activated on the earlier flight, something that might have spurred maintenance crews to further investigate the aircraft before it was redispatched. During takeoff as Flight 610, the stick shaker activated just as the captain lifted the nose wheel off the runway. The NTSC analysis is divided into three distinct categories. Findings, 
contrib contributing factors, and safety recommendations. Findings are statements of all significant conditions, events, or circumstances in the accident sequence, the report said. The findings are significant steps in the accident sequence, but are not always casual. Some findings point out the conditions that pre-existed the accident sequence, but are usually essential to the understanding of the occurrence, usually in chronological order. The NTSC included 89 findings in this accident report. Contributing factors are defined as actions, omissions, events, conditions, or a combination thereof, which, if eliminated, avoided, or absent, would have reduced the probability of the accident or incident occurring, or mitigated the severity of the consequences of the accident or incident. The NTSC identified nine contributing factors and some 25 safety recommendations. A few more prominent findings include the questions about why the failure of the MCAS functional test early in the program did not trigger a more intensive review by Boeing engineers, or why Boeing was able to certify MCAS by assuming that any well-trained flight crew would easily be able to identify and correct a runaway trim issue. Another question was why during Boeing's functional hazard test, the simulator test had never considered a scenario in which the MCAS activation allowed the stabilizer movement to reach the maximum MCAS limit of 2.5 degrees. A further question was why, in the event of MCAS activation with manual electric trim inputs by the flight crew, the MCAS function would reset, which would lead to subsequent MCAS activations. There are dozens of more questions that Boeing will need to answer in the coming months. Lion Air 2 offered some final comment to the NTSC's report. In its final report, the KNKT identified numerous design flaws in the Boeing 737-800 MAX aircraft. Boeing's failure to implement and conduct necessary operation safeguards and safety analysis during its design and development of MCAS and the inadequate approval process that enabled the Boeing self-certify MCAS without appropriate oversight. The KNKT also found that Boeing failed to correct the known software error that inhibited the AOA disagree alert from displaying on the pilot's PFD, which would have alerted the Lion aircraft or Lion Air that the left AOA sensor, which was feeding the incorrect data that activated the MCAS and the nose down commands, was malfunctioning. Coincidentally, the NTSC report was published just as Boeing CEO Dennis Mullenberg is preparing to testify on the Hill about his company's involvement in creating the 737 MAX. Although the document is a novel length, the NTSC's final accident report of Lion Air 610 represents a solid training opportunity for any pilot and is certainly worth a few hours it demands to digest the findings. Again, this article uh, published today in Flying Magazine, an article written by Rob Mark. So, wow, you know, this kind of sheds a little bit of light on what's been happening with uh, the, the 737 MAX 
and an amazing um, topic that it kind of gives way to is the previous crew had an incident or, you know, they had a, they had a warning that should have been documented, should have been reported. Uh, the information should have been put in their uh, maintenance log of the aircraft. Maintenance should have been notified. It could have prevented all those lives lost. And it, that's just astounding to me that someone would ignore or disregard something so critical. Um, also, you know, in the heat of the moment, we can sit here and play Monday morning quarterback uh, until we're blue in the face. And, and some pilots often do. I try absolutely not to follow in that direction. But just one topic to mention is, you know, how can you not notice that uh, 27 degree difference? You know, you look over, it's part of your flow. You're looking over and you just, you're making sure that as you're climbing out, you always glance at, you know, both sides of the cockpit. You don't just sit there, look straight ahead or, you know, look down at your lap. You're constantly comparing things and looking around and I don't know, it just seems that there were so many factors involved and the assumption that Boeing had that, you know, any pilot that's flying the airplane would immediately be able to recognize a pitch trim runaway, which, you know, to to the Boeing's defense, yes, we are trained uh, for that to be an instantaneous action, a kind of a memory item. You know, if you have a pitch trim runaway, you immediately, you know, depending on the aircraft you're you're typed in, would disconnect that uh, trim uh, setting so and then you know fly the aircraft and figure out you know what you need to do to to do the number one rule which is aviate right so you know a very interesting article uh some good reading this morning on this i haven't really given it uh a lot of time in, in the past year because i really was waiting to see what the final report was going to say and I, again i haven't read the full report but um as, as the article mentioned in its very last sentence there, that it would be a great learning tool for any pilot to dive into the read there. As is with all things mechanical, malfunctions happen. And, you know, shit breaks. What are you going to do? I mean, anyone that drives a car, has owned a car for a long enough period of time, knows that you know, Murphy's Law is that crap's going to break uh, at the most inopportune time when you're busy, when you don't have much time, when you're running errands, you know, it's just going to break. So what do you do with a car? You either you fix it, you take it in somewhere that's going to fix it. And, you know, you've got to maintenance it. Aircraft are absolutely no different. Um, I actually had uh, a story that I wanted to share with you about... Uh, an incident that uh, happened about two months ago, a high-speed abort at LAX. As is with any good joke or a good story, it's always best received if it's told in the first person. With that said, the following may or may not have occurred to myself or may or may not have happened in the manner in which I tell it. This is from the line. So months back, I was getting ready to leave the house to go for a four-day trip. 
And I, you know, had everything packed up. I had uh, my thermos full of uh, fresh coffee and I was just raring to go. So I get in the car and just before I'm pulling out of the driveway, I get a notification on my phone. That my flight schedule has been changed. So I put the car back in park and I'm looking at my schedule, and it looks like the first three days of my schedule just disappeared. So I thought, man, before I drive, you know, an hour and a half to the airport, I I better hang out here, give it five, ten minutes, and just double check because if. You know, I didn't really know why it changed, uh, what canceled or or got reassigned. I didn't know. So I just give it 10 minutes and then check again. And possibly I could spend another night at home. Let's see. So about 10 minutes goes by and I check my schedule again and I see that I've been reassigned. So originally I was supposed to fly uh, Red Eye to Charlotte on day one. and as I started diving into like what changed here in the schedule, I noticed that instead of going to Charlotte, I've been reassigned to go to Philadelphia. So not really a big deal. It uh, didn't really add too much time to my schedule. Uh, and it actually got me home a little earlier on day four, this, this reassignment. So yeah, it didn't really bother me too much. I thought, well, you know, my sign-in time's supposed to be around the same, so so no big deal. So I get in the car, and I'm driving down the freeway, and I get another notification. I have an app that uh, that pushes notifications to me anytime anything changes in my schedule or, or anything like that. So as I'm looking at it, uh, I notice that this flight that I'm supposed to be doing was not a red-eye originally. It was actually supposed to depart uh, somewhere around 6 p.m. And it had been delayed uh, due to a maintenance issue or mechanical issue. And uh, then the original crew that was flying it timed out. So we have these, uh, the FAR 117 is what we call it. It's the Federal Aviation Regulation um, uh, Part 117 that defines how much flying we can do in a day and um, also defines you know how much rest we have to have so in this particular uh, case the flight crew that was originally scheduled to fly this uh, because of the maintenance delay ended up timing out meaning they weren't legal to continue on so they had recruited the aircraft uh, with myself and with my original captain that I was going to be flying with for the week so by the time I got to the airport, I tried to sign in uh, for my trip, and it, it just wouldn't let me sign in for my trip. And so I got to the airplane and started doing my pre-flight duties, my walk around, and my captain shows up. And he goes, hey, how you doing? Uh, you know, I'm so-and-so, and I introduced myself as well. And, and uh, I said, oh, well, cool. Yeah, see, we got reassigned here. You know what? What uh, is going on here? Are you okay with this? And and he was like, yeah, yeah, it's not a big deal. It actually gets us done earlier, so I don't care. But uh, you know, did you did you uh, sign in for your trip? I said, well, I, I was having issues signing in. Uh, I don't know why, you know. And he goes, well, yeah, I I had issues as well. He tells me, he said I had to go uh, into the chief pilot's office. They were actually still there this evening. I don't know why, but they were there. So 
you know, they were trying to help me and, and they couldn't figure it out. So we ended up having to call our operations control and there's a, uh, uh, a chief there in operations that, you know, deals with these kind of things all the time. So, uh, he was able to sign in that way. He said, I, I recommend you call them because if you don't sign in, uh, for your trip, one, you don't want to, you know, show up as a late, but, but more importantly, you know, if you don't sign in for your trip, we're not going to get our paperwork. So, so yeah, you're right. So as I'm doing my duties, I'm, I'm, I'm on the phone and, and going back and forth with this. So we figured it all out. And, um, and as we were getting ready to go, before you can really leave, you need to have final paperwork. And what, what is final paperwork? Final paperwork is the weight and balance numbers for that flight. So it tells you everything from how many pounds of cargo you have, how many pounds of fuel, uh, how many passengers, if you have any you know, hazardous material or restricted articles or or, you know, do you have any jump seaters? It has all the numbers you need. And those numbers are generated from a person in, at a computer station that is tracking all your weight and balance information. And they push it to the aircraft. It comes out through our printer. So I'm not receiving this. And, you know, we're sitting there. We've pushed off the gate. We've started in an engine. And we're, we're, we're sitting there waiting for this paperwork. and. Finally, we had to make some phone calls. Uh, you know, we called operations a few times, and they're they're really having a hard time. And eventually, what they said was, "Oh yeah, uh, one of the pilots didn't sign in for their trip, so it's not showing that they're fit for duty." Uh, which is a FAR one seventeen regulation. You have to declare yourself fit for duty prior to every flight. So, you know, okay, here we go. So now. We had to jump through a couple more hoops, and we were able to manually uh, put it into the system that we were fit for duty uh, from within the aircraft, and we finally got our paperwork. Now, the background on the flight is important as well, and I kind of skipped over that. So when we got to the airplane, we found out from our flight attendants that this aircraft was originally supposed to go out uh, as a turn for them, and uh, they found a ding or a dent in one of the engine cowlings on uh, when one of the rampers saw it. So, you know, it was reported and maintenance was notified and they had to come out and they had to map it and, and do this whole thing. And, and of course that took uh, over an hour and a half and the original crew timed out. So they had to deplane the aircraft because at that point they had already had the passengers on board and they, they didn't know how long it was going to take to get another crew. So they deplaned. Passengers had to collect their things, go back into the airport terminal. And, you know, they waited about an hour and a half to get another crew on there. And so they decided, oh, let's go ahead and, um, you know, board the passengers again because we found another crew that is able to do it and they should be here soon. So after about 30 minutes, uh, they came to find out that that crew uh, timed out as well. They took a little bit longer to arrive to the airport, and it, it just wasn't a good scenario. So, uh, you know, at this point, they had to deplane yet again. So the passengers' patience were was very, very short. Uh, you know, they they had been dealing with this 
back and forth and you know maintenance and and flight crew uh, availability and it was just a hard time for them so when i arrived at the airport i actually was approached by one of my passengers uh, as I was getting on the jet bridge to come down and do my pre-flight duties. And this uh, older gentleman approached me and said, are, are, you, are you the pilot for Philadelphia? I said, yes, sir, I am. And he goes, oh, well, you're going to actually fly this airplane? I said, uh, yeah, I have full intention to. He said, oh, okay, good. You know, because, oh, is, were you waiting long? Is it delayed a lot? You know, and he goes, oh, well, we just, we can't find any good pilots. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I apologize for that, sir. You know, have a great day. You know, have a good flight. So I go down there and, you know, this is when we discover, you know, what had happened here. So, you know, now fast forward, pushed off the gate. Now we're sitting there waiting, waiting for this paperwork. Finally, after about 20 minutes, it, it comes through. We were able to get everything squared away and we were able to taxi out to the runway. So we're taxiing out to the runway and... You know, by now it's close to midnight, and wouldn't you know it? As we turn onto a taxiway Bravo, heading towards a two five right for departure, we get uh, an ECAM message, and what it says is there's some kind of a, a bleed transfer valve that failed. So, captain looks at me and says, "Well, you know." Uh, this is not good. Let's let's just go back to the gate and have maintenance take a look at this. Maybe they can fix it, or or maybe it's an MEL-able item. Uh, for those of you that don't know, MEL is a minimum equipment list. And I think I, I did speak a little bit about this in an earlier uh, episode, but the minimum equipment list allows an aircraft to depart with something that is not essential to be malfunctioned or deactivated until that aircraft can get to a maintenance repair facility uh, overnight and where they can fix it. So, you know, if it's an emailable item, uh, maintenance can deactivate the whatever the equipment is that is not functioning properly, and the aircraft can continue uh, with the flight safely. So, you know, I, I said, okay, well, uh, let's, let's contact MOC, or our maintenance operation control. And my captain's like, no, 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 just, just call operations. It's like, uh, okay, I, I already see what's going to happen here, but okay. Uh, so I call operations in, in Los Angeles. Mind you, now it's like 1230 in the morning. And I say, yeah, we've got a, a message here. We need to come back. And they say, well, uh, did you contact MOC? I said, no, we, we haven't called them yet. Oh, we'll contact MOC. Once you're off the gate, you, you know, we can't give you another gate until you contact MOC. I was like, oh. Well, okay. So the captain's like, just call maintenance. Just, I'm not going to call MLC with my cell phone. We're, we're, we're stopped here on a taxiway, but still, just give MLC or maintenance a call. So I call maintenance, knowing exactly what they're going to say. Like, well, uh, you know, did you contact MLC? He's like, no. It's like, oh, sorry, guys. I can't give you a gate and have you come back until you contact them. So my captain was, you know, upset. Now, Obviously, we're already delayed. You know, we're supposed to depart somewhere around 10.30, and here it is, you know, 12.30 in the morning. And so, fine, we call, contact them, we'll see, and they're like, oh, yeah, 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 go back to the gate. So they give us a gate, we go back, maintenance comes, there's like a team of maintenance people, like four of them, come on the airplane, captain makes the PA, apologizes to the passengers for the delay, unfortunately, it's a mechanical issue, they need to, they need to correct before we can go. So maintenance comes in and they they do their thing. They find out, yes, in fact, it is an emailable item. Uh, so they 
go through their systems checks. They deactivate uh, this uh, crossbleed uh, uh, valve, whatever it was. And uh, we were pushed off the gate, uh, got a little bit more fuel while we were there. And uh, we we're back to uh, ready to go. So we're now it's it's one thirty in the morning. It's late, and we're we're ready to go. And we have no traffic out there at all. So we're go direct to the runway, and we're clear for takeoff. And it was uh, my leg. We decided it was going to be my leg for the first leg. So as soon as we got lined up on the air on the air um, runway. The uh, tower controller says, all right, uh, Legacy Airlines, uh, you're clear for takeoff. Uh, so we set power, and as we're cruising down the runway, just somewhere around 65 knots, we get a master warning. Ding, 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 ding. And we had an ECAM message that said, hot brakes. And we're like, what, really? So, you know, it took a second for us to register what was happening. And the captain said, oh, uh, okay, um, reject my aircraft. So he did the reject and I, you know, did the, my call outs and then told ATC, we we're, you know, aborting our takeoff on runway 25. We need to go back to the gate. So uh, I said, okay, do you require assistance? And at the time, no, we don't need any assistance. So we end up, uh, calling operations this time directly and they're like oh yeah okay come back to the gate so we went back to the gate maintenance comes on board and we had uh, an issue with the left side the left side the brakes got very hot uh, on the takeoff roll and the right side the brakes temperatures were absolutely normal so it was of such a degree in difference between the left side and the right side that the maintenance personnel determined that they were going to have to just take apart the entire brake system and rebuild it to, you know, make sure that everything is, is a copacetic. So they ended up uh, delaying the flight until nine in the morning. So, which meant we weren't going to be legal for it. The passengers had the deplane and they were all given hotel rooms or the options to get hotel rooms and continue the flight the next day. So, you know, ever, by the time we got everything in order, the airplane, other than maintenance personnel, was completely empty. And, you know, so they were asking us you know, 100 questions about, about the abort. You know, well, what speed were you when you rejected? And, you know, what indications did you see? And what was the highest temperature on the wheel brake uh, indicators that you, that you noticed? And so, you know, although the indication happened at 65 knots, there was this lag time that's a uh, human factor lag time that's absolutely normal. And by the time the captain assumed aircraft control and rejected the takeoff, uh, you know, we could have been somewhere around 85, 90 knots, which is considered in the high speed regime. And it was a relatively stressful situation because. It wasn't just, you know, get to the airplane, go for takeoff. Oh, we got an indication, reject, and let's go back to the gate. This was like an evening of just one thing after another between the reassignment and then the, the inability to sign in for the trip. And then, you know, the closeout that didn't come through. And then you're taxing out and you have a, a maintenance item that pops up. 
and it becomes an issue about coming back to the gate or not coming back to the gate. And so it was just like one thing after another. So those days will definitely be there for an aviator. And the, the most important aspect of that is to just remember to remain calm, take one step at a time, and make sure that you do everything as normal and you don't rush through anything to try to catch up. Um, all in all, it was a non-event and it's just a reminder of things break. When that happens, the best thing to do is take the safest course of action. Sometimes mechanical issues can create high-stress environments. Other times, a pilot's actions or more so inactions can cause more than its share of stressful situations. I can remember my very first sequence that I was awarded. Uh, I was, you know, it's my first airline job. You know, I took training very seriously. You know, I absolutely did my best. And I got through it all in a relatively, um, you know, it just, it, it was difficult. It was challenging. Uh, it was very stressful because there was a lot riding on this. But I got through everything relatively unscathed. So, you know, here I am. Uh, I was in my mid-20s at my first airline job. And based in Chicago was my first assignment. So I'm at my crash pad. I think I was on reserve for two weeks and then the following bid cycle came out and I actually held a very junior line. So during that two week period that I was on reserve, I was sitting at the crash pad with some of my buddies from, from training and I proffered for a trip, meaning I looked at what trips were open and available for the following day. And then I put in my preference on which one I would rather fly. And it's all based on seniority. So, uh, you know, obviously people that are senior, they're, they're holding a line and they know what they're flying. They've been awarded flying and, and they know their schedule for the month. But when you're on reserve, you don't know. You're, you're on call. And I was on a short call uh, the next day. So if I did absolutely nothing... Uh, I at, at more than likely I was going to get a phone call to say either we have flying for you or you know come sit at the airport and sit airport ready and because that's the way my my operator uh, or my regional airline operated they they had short call and then they had airport standby so I didn't want to have to do that I, I just I wanted to just go fly because here I am fresh out of training and ready to get my feet wet, right? So I got this trip. I proffered for a trip. I got it. Was awarded the trip. And and some of the other guys, you know, they're all on their phones as well, you know, finding out what their schedule is going to be like for the next day. And I'm like, oh guys, I got a really good four day trip. And I'm like, oh congratulations, they tell me. And uh I said, yeah, and this looks like a good Dayton overnight and looks like a Cincinnati overnight. This looks pretty good. And some of the guys were like, yeah, congratulations, man. Who are you flying with? I'm like, oh, I, I, I don't know. How do you even check that? I didn't even know. So they're like, oh, yeah, go on the computer and type this up, and it'll tell you who you're flying with. And I'm, I read it, and let's just call 
this individual Captain M. Okay. So I'm like, oh, I'm flying with Captain M. And they and they all just kind of, you know, looked at me and went, oh, uh, I think maybe you should call in sick. Like, what do you, what do you mean I should call in sick? You know, what are you talking about? It's like, oh, this guy's famous. He's on everybody's do not fly list. I'm like, oh, a what? A do not fly? What's that? They're like, oh, well, there's a list that, you know, FOs have, especially when you're new and you're on reserve, uh, that of captains that have a reputation that you just don't want to fly with them because, you know, they're just, they're either they're hard or they're kind of jerks or, you know, they're, they're doing everything kind of like their own way and they'll maybe they'll yell at you or what, for whatever reason, you know, the personalities are usually kind of difficult to get along with. So you know, that we have this do not fly list, you know, and, you know, granted this was before technology and internet and social media. And so the do not fly list was something passed on, you know, privately from pilot to pilot going, Oh yeah, if you get this guy, you know, look out for this or look out for that. So I'm like, well, you know, I I, I don't know if I, I don't want to f- fall into that uh, do not fly or, or do not pair with stuff, man. I, I'm an adult. I'll just go show up, do my job. I know I'm going to do a good job. And, you know, if everything goes okay, then, you know, I'm not going to worry about it. You know, and in my previous career, because I, I do have a previous career that I had a, a, a decade in this uh, box retail management, I was like, man, I've, I've had to hire and fire hundreds of people and, and I've had to go through all different types of personalities before. I'm sure I can handle, you know, a, a pilot that I've never met before. And if I can't, then I'll deal with it at that time. So they both kind of looked at me, my, my buddies at the crash pad, and they're like, oh, okay, let me know how it goes. So the next day I showed up to the airport and introduced myself. And the captain, you know, was a uh, you know, typical captain, older in age, and I've uh, been with the company a long time. His seniority number was in double digits, okay? And when your company has close to 3,000 pilots, to have a captain with double-digit seniority, they're senior. They've been around a long time. And so I just, you know, showed up, did my job, uh, ran the checklist, and, and did everything I could to assist the captain as what is the first officer's, you know, duties. And I, the first day went by fine. I didn't have any issue with this individual. I could see that they were a little old school. Uh, he had a, a cup of black coffee in one hand almost at all times. And uh, every single leg, there was a cigarette that had to be had. So, you know, he would go and disappear for five minutes and, and go find a place that he could have a, his cigarette. And, you know, it didn't bother me at all. He he went and took care of his business. I did my my duties. and. And it was fine. But day two went a little bit differently. So the scenario was uh, I was flying from Chicago to Dayton for the overnight. And we're all getting ready to go. We take off. We're flying along. It's a beautiful day. And I was working the radios while the captain was in command of the aircraft. And ATC called and said, uh, you know, legacy, actually at the time it was a regional. So regional uh, flight uh, advised them ready to copy holding instructions. Like, oh, okay, or holding, okay. 
Let's see why. The weather's good here and there, but whatever. So the holding instructions were read, and I read them back and started to plug in all the holding characteristics in the flight management computer in the FMS. And the captain was doing the same on his side. And uh, the aircraft that I was on at the time, you had to each put in your independent holding instructions, your your independent GPS uh, uh, and FMS information and verify it because it was dependent on which autopilot was flying the aircraft uh, to which FMS system it was gathering its information. So we we put the information in there and they give us a uh, an expected further clearance time or an EFC. And so I wrote it down and, you know, being the, the, the studious and the proactive first officer that I was, you know, I start calculating uh, how much fuel we had from our present position to the holding fix and then how many turns in the hold we could do before we reached our critical fuel or our bingo fuel, which is the point at which you don't have enough fuel to legally continue and you're going to have to start going to your alternate airport. So as I am uh, expressing this information to the captain, uh, he starts getting on the radio and saying, well, well why are we holding and, and what's going on here? And, uh, you know, what's, what's the reason for the hold? And the air traffic control comes back and says, well, it's a, it's a TFR for a VIP. You know, well, who, who's, a, who's it for? Who's this temporary flight restriction for? And the air traffic controller says, well, sir, I, I can't tell you that. Oh, that means it's the president. He says, ah, I can't believe we're holding for that guy. You know, how long is this going to take? They just read the clearance pack, you know? So meanwhile, I am, you know, I've done all my duties and I've started to type into uh, the ACAR system, uh, the message that we're sending to our dispatcher, uh, giving him our present position, you know, how much fuel we have on board, what our holding clearances, what our ESC is. And uh, just so that they're in the loop as well. And my captain, uh, Captain M, he looks at me and says, uh, what are you doing? So, well, I'm sending a message to our dispatcher, letting them know what's up. And he's like, oh, don't waste your time. That's some, uh, you know, 19-year-old pimple-faced punk that's in that uh, in front of a computer. They don't know what they're doing. They're not flying the airplane. You and I are flying the airplane. We, it's, we're in charge up here. Don't, don't waste your time. I'm like, oh, okay. All right. So I, he's like, oh, get your low and route chart. Get chart number uh, four dash five and pull that out here. And uh, let's take a look at that. I, you know, this alternate airport, uh, it's too far away. We got to find a better alternate airport. Oh, okay, Captain. Uh, you know, I'm relatively new here. I don't know which airports we go to. So I'll pull it out and you might need to help me out, figure out, you know, a better alternate for you. So uh, here I am digging in my kit bag and I'm digging out this, this paper chart, this, you know, tissue paper. Uh, chart is, is pull it out, spread it out, and I start naming off airports. I go, well, do we go here? Do we go here? And no, 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 no. Uh, you know, give me that. So he takes the the chart. Meanwhile, air traffic control comes back and says, uh, regional uh, flight uh, advisor ready to copy uh, further holding instructions. Oh, okay, uh, ready to copy. I say, and our air traffic controller says, uh, yes, uh, regional flight. Uh, you're now cleared to the ABC VOR hold on the 270 radial right turns, four mile legs approved EFC of whatever it was, 2130 Zulu. And uh, so I read it back and I start to plug it into our holding definition page on our flight management system. And I'm looking 
uh, the captain over on his side, and he's desperately looking for these fixes, and they're not in there because it was not part of our original flight plan. So he's like, well, it's not even freaking in here. What, what the? And so he gets on the radio again and says, well, this fix isn't even in there. And, and our air traffic controller doesn't even raise her voice or anything. She just reads the holding clearance again. And so now he's visibly frustrated. And I said, you know, Captain, you fly the airplane. All right, I'll, let me plug it into the computer for you. So, okay, fine. So he's now flying the plane, looking at the chart, trying to figure out, you know, a better alternative to our original destination alternate. So, which I think was Cincinnati, actually. Yeah, it was Cincinnati. So, you know, he's he's getting frustrated and he's getting on the radio and, and I'm plugging away and I get everything situated and I activate the hold. And so now I'm calculating the fuel again. And at this time, I realized that once we got to our holding fix, we really didn't have any fuel for holding. I mean, we had zero turns in the hold. We had, at that point, if we weren't clear directly to uh, Dayton, then we had to go to our alternate, which was Cincinnati. So he says, you know, just pull out a, pull out chart number or whatever it was, 6.7. So he goes, pull out the other chart. Uh, we got to find this better alternate. I'm like, okay, Captain. So meanwhile, I was typing away a message to our dispatcher while he wasn't paying attention. And I was giving them all the critical information, present position, uh, what our clearance was, what our EFC was, and how much fuel we had. And immediately we got a response back. And when we get a message from SOC, uh, the Systems Operation Control is what they called it, uh, there's light that flashes in the cockpit. And I purposely didn't, didn't retrieve it. And I'm like, uh, Captain, it looks like we have a... Uh, message over here. He goes, what? And then at that point, I realized, I look over, he's looking at a chart right in front of him, but things spread right open. He has me looking at a chart and I'm thinking, well, shit, who's flying the freaking airplane? You know? So I put my chart away and, and, uh, he starts to review this message on his, uh, flight management system here. So he's reading this ACARS message and the message reads, Captain, you are at or below bingo fuel right now. You need to divert. And just then, the aircraft enters the hold. And so I give my position to ATC. It says, oh, we're entering the hold at this such and such time uh, as, you know, as cleared. And uh, I say, Captain, I, I agree with that message. I, I, we don't think we have the fuel for this. And you know, we at this point haven't found an, a good alternative to an alternate. So uh, the bingo fuel, I think, is we're at it, or if not, you know, below it. And he goes, ah, uh, you know, I, I don't, we, we got to find a better airport. This is, this is ridiculous. So he's insistent on continuing to hold and find an airport that would lower our bingo fuel so that we could hold longer so we didn't have to divert. And I said, Captain, I, 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 we don't have the fuel for this. We really don't have the fuel for this. So meanwhile, we're, we're in the turn, and another message comes by saying, Captain, you're well below bingo fuel. You need to divert now, 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 now. And he reads it, and he's like, damn it. So he gets on with ATC. Now he's flying the airplane. He's talking on the radio, and he's got a chart out, and he's, you know, he, he's 
really juggling a lot there. And I'm doing all my duties and trying to assist him in any way, shape, or form, but he really wasn't having it. And uh, he gets on the radio and tells ATC, all right, we need to go direct to our alternate uh, now. We cannot accept an arrival. We cannot accept an approach. We need direct to the numbers. We are uh, minimum fuel, minimum fuel. And so our traffic control comes back and says, all right, uh, regional flight, uh, turn left, the heading of zero nine or zero and head direct to uh, Cincinnati Airport to send maintain 10,000. So uh, he reads it back and now he's flying and talking on the radios and I'm really just kind of along for the ride. And and uh, he says to me, get in your kit bag and pull out your main books and, and pull out the Cincinnati charts. Uh, they've got taxi diagrams and you know, all kinds of stuff. And, you know, it's really confusing airport. And so I'm like, oh, okay, captain, sure. No problem. So I, uh, you know, I'm digging out my, uh, my charts and of course, you know, my trip book, which is the little book with all the paper charts that I had for the week that I had, you know, already organized and had out, uh, was there. And then I had to pull out the big Jeppesen book and thumb through and look for, uh, the Cincinnati airport pages and and find you know in in the plethora of pages that they had for that particular airport the ones that we needed uh, with all the appropriate frequencies and the taxi diagram and whatnot so got it all out and this captain he is just like flying this airplane he's booking it to that airport and staying high as long as he can does a nice continuous descent i mean he could fly the plane i had absolute confidence in what he was doing. I mean, this guy was experienced. He had senior, but in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, we're going to land with a lot less fuel than we should have. He's going to get a slap on the wrist. I'm going to get fired because I'm a new hire on probation. I mean, you know, this is not good. And I was an instructor for a long time and I don't ever remember as a flight instructor with a student, uh, ever feeling like, oh crap, are we going to make it? Okay. But on this particular day, because the scenario unfolded the way it did, I was thinking, holy shit, I, uh, are we going to make it? You know, and am I going to have a job by the time we land, if not worth? So uh, we ended up making it just fine. Um, but we started getting notifications that we were going to be really low in fuel when we were about 20 miles out, which is not something you ever want to see. So, you know, he tells me, hey, God, don't put the gear or the, the flaps out until I tell you, because we're not going to make it. And I'm like, what? what? Okay. Hearing your super senior captain tell you that introduces a pucker factor of 10. I mean, I was sweating. My adrenaline was pumping. I'm watching this guy who is just his nervousness made me absolutely just petrified on how this outcome was going to happen. I, I I didn't feel sure about if we were going to make it or not. So, you know, we landed fine. Okay. We touched down in the touchdown zone, you know, he's rolling out and we're just cruising down the runway. We're about 80 knots. He goes, turn the APU on. We're not, we got to shut down the engines. We're not going to make it to the ramp. It's a long text. Like why? What? I, it was it was bad. It was one of those scenarios where you know you're sweating through your shirt and you're you're just. It was the worst uh, adrenaline pumping scenario I had ever had uh, up to that point. 
And as we're taxiing over to the ramp area, they had some fuel trunks and some stairs standing by, and there was a station agent over there with some paperwork for him. And you know, we get to the ramp, we park in one of our remote parking spots, and he's he has me reading the uh, parking checklist, and I I finished the checklist. I'm shaking, I'm sweating, and I'm shaking, and just because the scenario unfolded the way it did, you know, he just it was bad, and. He looks at me, and he grabs my shoulder, and he says, Tony, you need to calm down. I live for this shit. I'm going to go have a smoke. So he, he gets up, he grabs his, his, his cold black coffee, takes a swig, goes down the stairs, you know, shakes the hand of the, the, the fueler and the, uh, the station guy, runs over towards the terminal to have his uh, cigarette and wherever employee area they are allowed to have cigarettes. And the flight attendant sticks her head in the cockpit and goes, you know, I can hear everything that is set up here, right? I'm like, what? No, what? And she goes, yeah, and this airplane, all the way down to row three, every word that you guys say in the cockpit, if you guys talk loud enough, we can hear everything. She goes, I heard everything. She goes, you handled yourself very well. Please don't call in sick. I said, call in sick? What are, you, what are you talking about? She's like, well... I've flown with this captain for many, many years, and I'm, I feel very confident he's a very good pilot, but he's very hard on his FOs, and a lot of his FOs end up calling in sick after they fly with him. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I can kind of understand why. I mean, he wasn't listening to my suggestions, and, and it was just fine, but, I mean, to take us to that low of fuel where we actually... After landing, we got, you know, low fuel indications. I mean, that's, that's a major deal. And she's like, yeah, no, no, you're, you're right. She goes, but I tell you what, this is what's going to happen. We're going to be in the air in about 10 minutes. He's going he's gonna to turn this airplane around real fast because he wants to get to his overnight. And, you know, so just let's just get there. When we get there, you've got five minutes. Go to your room, put in your street clothes. And at the hotel, meet me at the back of the bar at the patio. I'm going to buy you some beers tonight. But don't tell him. Because I'm just, it's just for you. And I was like, wow, you know, that, that's very kind of you. You know, it's very cool, you know, hanging out with this, uh, this uh, older lady that was very nice to me. And so we get to the hotel and he was fine. Got back in the airplane, ran all our checklists as usual. Uh, at, the end of the, at the end of the day, he wasn't frustrated. He wasn't frustrated at me for being a new hire and still kind of slow on the uptake, you know. And, but, you know, it all worked out. We, we got to, to Dayton and got to the hotel and I quickly changed and met my, my flight attendant down at the bar. And, and she would just, she was buying me some beers and telling me stories about, about flying and flying with him, with Captain M, you know, and, and at the end of it all, you know, yeah, it was stressful when it was happening because I felt like, you know, it's this, this crew resource management or now the, the threatened air management, it's what they're calling it now, the TEM, uh, really was one-sided and, and it just it wasn't working the way it was supposed to work. And so when I got back from that trip, I ended up uh, back at the crash pad for one more night and, and both of my roommates were looking at me like, oh, so how was your trip? <laughs> I was like, oh, guys, I... Uh, probably should have called in sick and they're like oh, oh we told you and like you know what it wasn't that bad because the you know later in the evening and and then even the next day the next uh, few days on that trip it was fine you know it just it, it 
could have been a very bad scenario, but it worked out fine. You know, it just, I learned my lesson and I've got a great saying that I in turn used later on, which was when I was flying with a young FO that was, you know, new and nervous. And after we landed, got to the gate, ran our checklist. Uh, I often used it. I put my, uh, my hand on their shoulder and said, dude, you need to calm down. I live for this shit. And it really does take all kinds um, to, to fly airplanes. You're going to meet people. And in every industry, you're going to meet all kinds of people, all different types of personalities. And after you do it long enough, you start to recognize the signs. Um, it, it just it reminds me of one guy I flew with. It's the last captain story. But uh, I flew with this guy, again, early on in my career. He's a really nice guy. You know, we start talking about family and a couple of kids and this and that. And, you know, we're taking off. And the aircraft uh, has a sun visor that is adjustable, that can be rotated uh, almost 180 degrees in the cockpit from left to right. And it's on a track, and there's a, a, a knob that it's used to tension down this sun visor so that you can angle it and position it wherever you need it to be because the aircraft obviously is constantly moving and, and banking, and so it needs to be very flexible. So what was happening in that particular airplane is when the sun visor was in the stowed position and the tension knob was left relatively loose, but not too loose, the entire sun visor would kind of like vibrate back towards an area of the track where it got thicker. And then it would be very difficult to loosen and move and to manipulate. And so I remember flying with this guy. He was a, he was a, a small statured uh, captain. And We've been flying together for a day or two, so you know, we kind of got to know each other and felt pretty comfortable with each other. And as we we're taking off uh, out of Chicago on runway two two left, uh, usually out of two two left, it is a uh, you know climb to five thousand uh, with an immediate left turn and contact departure. So as we're climbing, we're making this immediate left turn. We're heading southbound, contact departure, and I can see him struggling. He's hand flying the airplane with one hand, and with the other hand, he's reaching up over his head to get the sun visor loose so that we can, you know, he can put it in position. And because uh, the sun was right in his eyes, it was, uh, it was just a part of the day where the sun, as soon as you turned, it was right in your face. So he's he's struggling, and so he says, oh, he's starting to get angry, and now he says, you know what, your aircraft. So I'm like, okay. So I assume control of the airplane and just then ATC calls. So all right, contact, uh, climb to this, you know, 7,000 contact departure. Okay, fine. Dial it all in. And he is, puts his seat back and he takes his headset off. And now he's both hands trying to get this sun visor loose so he can put it in front and manipulate it. And now he's getting, he's just getting angrier and angrier. And he's like, damn, damn this damn thing. And he gets to the point where now he's like, punching it. He's just so angry at this thing. He went from calm and cool and collective to just in the red, just coming unglued, steam coming out of his ears. That motherfucking piece of shit, baby, I don't know what else. And he's punching the thing, trying to get it to, to get knock free. And now he's cut himself. He is one of his knuckles, you know, hit 
the clasp and now he's cut himself. And so I've got my arm up like over my face because I don't want to get hit by by his, <laughs> you know, his blood and whatnot. And and I'm flying the airplane. I turn the autopilot on. I'm like, oh God, this guy's losing it on me. What the hell, you know? But I'm, it's kind of comical too because he's a relatively small frame guy. And so he just comes unglued and then he's like just, really breathing heavy and he looks over at me and I'm just smiling at him and I've got my hand up over my face to block any potential, you know, uh, fluids coming my way. And he just, uh, he exhales and puts his headset back on, moves his seat. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, man. Do you, do you have any napkins over there? I'm bleeding kind of bad. <laughs> like, yeah, I no shit. And so, so he gets himself cleaned up and, and throws, I had a couple band-aids. I gave him a couple band-aids and, so he gets cleaned up and he gets settled down and, and I'm like, dude, are you, you okay, man? It's like, you're just kind of losing it on me over here. And he's like, well, yeah, I'm fine. He goes, I, I swear someone's going around tightening these, uh, you know, tension knobs with pliers because every time I get in an airplane, this, this bullshit happens. This, this is bullshit. And I said, well, you know, actually I think the reason it's happening is because, you know, the vibrations, it goes back and I actually have a trick to loosen that thing up. And he's like, what? You, 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 you didn't tell me what, what the hell? And I said, well, you know, it involves using this uh, tool we have here in the cockpit, this uh, crash axe. And you can, you can use the back of the handle and just tap it lightly and it'll loosen the, the sun visor and you can position it and, you know, no big deal. And I do it all the time. He's like, well, what the hell? Why didn't you, why didn't you tell me? You saw I was freaking losing. I'm like, yeah, well, I didn't want to have to explain to the FAA why the crash axe went through the side window at a couple thousand feet off the ground because the captain was trying to loosen the sun visor. <laughs> at that point, we just, we just were cracking up laughing and he apologized for freaking losing it. And I'm like, hey man, it's, it's all good. And, and he actually was fine. Just, he was one of those tense moments where it was like just kind of building up and he had been having problems with this thing, you know, in the past. So, uh, the funny thing is like about a month later, I saw him walking in the airport and instead of saying, Hey, how you doing? You know, I can just put my hand up over my face. Like, Oh, look out. Here he comes. <laughs> He's going to hit you. <laughs> he just started laughing, lost it again. And he's just cracking up. But you know, Hey, it's not always, uh, you're losing it for, for just crazy oddball reasons sometimes you're legitimately pissed off at something but yeah he was he was quite the character and uh you know harmless situation but he he definitely uh had a had a memory uh that i that i got to remember the other day just you know losing it over a sun visor and but at the end of the trip you know it, it was actually quite nice to fly with him he was he was a cool guy Well, I mentioned uh, earlier in the episode that we were going to talk about sleep-deprived pilots, and I've got—I went in a little long today, but uh, just a quick story. Um, you know, we're going to talk about sleep deprivation, flying airplanes, flying on the backside of the clock in future episodes. But in this episode, I just wanted to mention uh, a story that happened many years ago. Uh, flew with a guy who. Uh, he was an older gentleman getting ready to retire and 
you know, we was our first leg together. And actually, we only had to fly a turn. It was like Chicago to, I think, White Plains, New York, and then back. And so we take off out of Chicago and, you know, get through 10,000 feet. And he goes, hey, man, uh, uh, I, I, I got to close my eyes for a minute. Do you mind if I close my eyes for a minute? I said, you know what? That's fine. You know, just take a little quick uh power nap for five ten minutes i i got the airplane no problem you know and being in the airplane you you know you're not supposed to take little power naps actually in canada uh from what i understand their their aviation authority is the uh, allows for these little quick power micro sleeps uh or, or power naps uh in in cruise uh, because if you stop and think about it you go okay you know you're driving along in your car and you kind of get drowsy you know, the best thing to do is pull over, you know, go in some parking lot, you know, close your eyes for 10 minutes, uh, because that little micro power nap is going to help you out because then you'll be awake, uh, for the more critical part of the drive possibly. And in the airplane, the FA doesn't allow that, but, uh, sometimes, you know, a pilot will be kind of drowsy and say, oh, do you mind keeping an eye on it? Yeah, sure. No problem. I mean, you know, unofficially that's, it happens. And so this guy, you know, I was thinking he's out for maybe five minutes. And, you know, obviously if, uh, if ATC called or an alarm went off, it would wake him up immediately, but, but nothing happened. It was very quiet flight. And then after a while I noticed, man, he's really, he's really breathing heavy. He's really out. So I kind of felt bad for the guy. He was a, an older gentleman and getting ready to retire real soon. And, and I thought, well, I'll, just, I'll let him sleep a little longer. There's nothing going on anyway. So I'm answering all the radio calls and flying the airplane and, and, and all that. And as we got closer, now we kind of had to start our descent. So all right, start down to figure, okay, he's going he's gonna to start wrestling around and he's going to realize he's been out for a while. You know, he's going to wake up. And so we're getting a little lower, a little lower, and now ATC's like, all right, you know, you're going to be on the arrival now. And so I kind of started raising the volume of everything in the cockpit, and finally I kind of gave him a little nudge, and he wakes up, and he goes, oh, oh my God, where, how, how long was I out? I said, you were out for a while, man. He's, he's like, oh my God, I, just, I haven't been sleeping for like three months. I, I just, I keep waking up in the middle of the night, and I, I just, I've been so tired, and I, and I, you know, I haven't been able to sleep, and oh my god, I just this is the the deepest best sleep I've I've had in in months. Thank you so much. And oh man, you got the airplane all set up for us. This is great. And I'm like, uh, yeah, yeah. Just why don't you just you know plot some checklists and let's go over this arrival and and do our our stuff here as we get caught up. And he's, oh yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. So, you know, we we got all caught up, and you know plenty of time to to get the airplane set up and come in on the arrival and that's visual landing in white planes and you know, it was like a 30 minute turn and we're back in the air and as we're you know getting a cruise altitude he he leans his seat back he looks at me and he goes hey man I, i'd like to return the favor you know you want to want to close your eyes for a little while i'll, I'll get the airplane I'm like uh no thank you i i think i got it covered man I, i'm not tired and i wasn't you know i'm not tired and so he's like oh man just that that just you're so awesome to let me you know sleep like that you know it, it just was so kind of you and I was like uh yeah no problem no problem and I and I kind of I I didn't uh, I didn't regret letting him sleep you know I sometimes I'd rather he be fully refreshed 
for the critical phase of the flight where we're coming in to land uh, than to, you know, be drowsy, you know? So it, it all, it all worked out and he was very grateful. And after we landed and, you know, parked the airplane, I knew I probably was never going to see this guy again. I said, Hey man, just make, make sure you get your rest, uh, you know, uh, before you fly, you might want to, if you're that tired, you know, just stay home or, or, you know, skip the flight and stay in the crew room and, and sleep for a few hours and catch up with your flight after or something, you know. And granted, this was all way before uh, the FAR-117. We had fatigue calls, fatigue risk management stuff, um, but uh, he was uh, the kind of guy that would just rather just take a quick little <laughs> nap and cruise, I guess. But he was getting to retire. I'm sure he's been retired for over a decade now. But yeah, being tired, uh, falling asleep, it, it could be a relatively dangerous thing, especially in a car. So to all my fellow aviators that are out there, you know, you fly a trip and then, you know, you get to the employee lot and then you're kind of tired or you just got off a red eye and now you got to drive home. Trust me, do what I do. Uh, if you really think that you're too tired to drive, or if it's even questionable that you're too tired, uh, I'd lower the seats in the back of my car, get in a sleeping bag, and I'll conk out in the employee parking lot for a couple hours until I know that, okay, now I can drive home because I'll be damned if uh, here I am at the uh, pinnacle of my career and I'm going to fall asleep at the wheel and injure somebody else or myself i mean that would just be detrimental so please please be safe out there um if you're tired too tired to drive too tired to fly just sit it out it is far better to get there alive than not at all well that just about wraps up the episode this week I'd like to take this opportunity and thank all of you listeners out there for taking the time to tune in and listen to the Squawk Ident podcast. This has been an absolute delight to produce, and I'd like to continue to do so for a long time to come. So I'd like to invite you to check out the newly designed website at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha, Victor, the number 8, Romeo, Tango, Oscar, November, Yankee.com. From there, there are links to listen to the podcast. And there's also a Aviator store where you can pick up some merchandise to support Squawk Ident. Now, the links to listen to the podcast will take you directly to the host, which is anchor.fm. From there, you can see a button that says support this podcast. I'd like to encourage you to take a look at it and see even a dollar a month would be very helpful to help pick up some new equipment so that I can start bringing on guests and doing remote podcast recordings. I have received a few emails and direct messages from some of the listeners and I absolutely enjoy all of the feedback that I have received. I'd also like to give a shout out to Don Z from the Breaker Breaker podcast, who has inspired me and taught me quite a bit about podcasting over the past few months. Finally, I'd like to thank all of you for taking the time to listen to this grateful aviator. Keep the dirty side down, 
be safe, and take care of each other. Thank you.